0: Amen. Good morning. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. And since uh, today is Father's Day and uh, I am a father as well, uh, I figured I'd start off with a few uh, dad jokes for this morning's sermon, okay? Don't worry, I've got plenty stored up in my database. So, did you know that the blue whale is so huge that if you laid it end to end on a basketball court the game would be canceled at first thanks for those obligatory chuckles right at first i didn't like my beard but then it grew on me last night i had a dream about a muffler and i woke up exhausted if prisoners could take their own mug shots you know what they'd be called selfies what did a dog in a tree talk about Bark. <laughs> some of you will get that later. <laughs> what did the ocean say to the wa- ocean say to the shore? Nothing. It just waves. <laughs> right, right, right. Some of you know some of these, right? What has four letters, sometimes has nine letters, never has five letters, and always has six. That's not a joke, that's just a statement of fact there. <laughs> I would sign up <laughs> you guys are awful. <laughs> You'll get that later. I would sign up for my company's 401k, but if you ask me, that's way too far to run. <laughs> What's the difference between a well-dressed man on a unicycle and a poorly dressed man on a bicycle? A tire. <laughs> I used to be an elevator mechanic, but I had to quit. The job had too many ups and downs. <laughs> And I really do love elevator jokes. They work on so many different levels. (laughs) My buddy just broke up with his girlfriend after five years. He found out she was a communist. He was shocked, but I was seeing red flags everywhere. (laughs) I think my wife is putting glue on my antique gun collection again. She denies it, but I'm sticking to my guns. My daughter just said to me, Dad, you haven't listened to a word I said. And I thought, that's a really weird way to begin a conversation. (laughs) When I die, I want to die like my grandfather did, peaceful and in his sleep, not yelling and screaming like the passengers in his car. (laughs) What's the difference between a dad joke and a bad joke? Just one letter, right? <laughs> so thank you for uh, thank you for indulging me in that humor this morning. <laughs> But happy, happy Father's Day to all of the, uh, the dads out there. In all seriousness, if your dad is still living, I hope you'll uh, be able to pick up the phone today, shoot him a text, give him a call, that sort of thing. And thinking of Father's Day, I, I considered uh, extolling on the greatness of fathers or encouraging you fathers to, including myself, right, to be better fathers. But instead, I want to focus on the relationship that each one of us have with our Heavenly Father. We'll be in Galatians chapter 3 this morning. I'd invite you to find that in your Bibles. It's on page 914 of that Pew Bible there. Uh, Jumping into Galatians chapter 3 is a little bit like jumping into a a moving raft headed down whitewater rapids. You don't get a whole lot of time to adjust and you're mostly holding on for dear life. But that's what we're going to do this morning. Jump into the Apostle Paul's train of thought midstream, mid-chapter. We're not going to do a super deep dive on these 15 or so verses from Galatians 3 and 4, but I think we're going to be able to pull out some timely truths regarding our relationship with our Heavenly Father. And most importantly, we're going to discover that through faith in Jesus Christ, we have become children of our Heavenly Father with all the rights and the blessings and the benefits that come with being His children. So I would invite you to stand with me this morning as we look again at Galatians chapter 3. The text is longer, so we're going to divide it up and read it as we get to it. But these first first three or four verses, beginning at verse 21 of Galatians chapter 3, reading in Jesus' name. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everyone under sin, so that the promise of faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law is our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Would you join me in a word of prayer this morning? Heavenly Father, again, I thank you for the day. Thank you for the fathers that you have given us. Thank you for uh, this truth in your word, Lord. And we pray that as we look at these verses from Galatians 3 and 4 today, that we would be challenged, that we would be encouraged, that you would show us a sin in our lives where that is necessary, but also encourage us with the promises of your word and the promises of your gospel. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. The first, the first uh, truth that we come to in this text isn't necessarily a happy one. Before we get to the good news of our adoption and our inclusion into the family of God, there's some bad news. And Paul says that before Christ came... We were prisoners, held captive, imprisoned by the law. And this is true not just for you on on a personal, individual level, but also on the whole grand scale of humanity, mankind as a whole. Before Christ came, before faith had come, Paul says, we were bound, chained, imprisoned by the law. And before we go too far, it's good to to pause and to define what the law is. What is the law? It's a common word in Scripture that we all have a handle on, and in Galatians, Paul uses it in its uh, technical capital L sense. What is the law? It's one of our first questions that we ask and answer with our confirmation students. And if you were to pull out your red catechism that uh, that some of you have, question number eleven in that red catechism is what is the law, and the the, the definition that's in the, uh, uh, in the uh, catechism there, you get the gist of it there. The law is the teaching of the word of God which tells me how I am to be and what I am to do and not to do. Again, that's a textbook complicated definition. A simpler way to think of it would be the law says do do this, or you could put it negatively, don't do that, right? The law shows us how we are to live. The law shows us those commands of God, and often it shows us where we fall short of keeping those commands, right? And in, in telling us what to do and what not to do, the law functions as a sort of mirror, as a sort of mirror. Uh, you woke up this morning, right? Most of you, I'm assuming, have woken up at some point in time this morning, right? Um, and, and I'm assuming at some point you also looked in a mirror, right? You probably looked in a mirror. Uh, and what did you see, right? As you looked in the mirror, you saw reality, right? You saw your appearance as it really is. All the, the matted hair that's, that's out of place, the, the lines uh, from the pillowcase that have been creased onto your face, the, the dark circles under your eyes from not enough sleep, uh, the glazed look in your eyes that only is cured by a few cups of coffee, right? Now, did, did the mirror cause those things to happen? No, it's not the mirror's fault you look the way you do in the morning, right? (laughs) The mirror just shows you the reality of of the things that are already out of place. And God's law is the mirror for your soul, showing you what is out of place there. As you read, for example, the, the Ten Commandments, you read things like, Do not murder, do not bear false witness, don't have any other gods, honor your father and mother. The law, though, extends beyond those basic Ten Commandments. Jewish scholars count 613 mitzvahs or 613 commandments in the Torah. And many of these deal with worship of the Lord in the temple and with life in community. And Jesus famously writes, summarizes the law this way. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And sometimes in our arrogance, we begin to think that we are doing okay in keeping the law, that our appearance is pretty good. (laughs) And our logic goes like this, you know, I've, I've never murdered anyone, so I'm, I'm okay there. And it's been a while since I've had a conversation with my mother, so I haven't had a chance to dishonor her in that regard. I go to church, and I don't believe that Muhammad is the prophet of God, so I don't have any other gods. I do, I do fudge the numbers at work a little bit, tell a little white lie every now and then. But you know, everybody does that, right? God's going to grade on a curve, isn't he? But then we begin to read Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount where he expands God's law, breaking down our self-righteousness, our prideful attitudes, getting at the heart of things. Jesus said this, he said, you have heard it said, do not murder. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother is subject to judgment. And whoever says to his brother, you fool will be in subject of the fires of hell. That one hits a little bit closer to home, doesn't it? He also said, whoever looks at a, at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then on and on he goes, tearing down our self-righteous, arrogant hearts. And then to top it all off, he says this. He says, you must be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Oof, that's a tall order, isn't it? Something we can never The law shows us our sin, shows us how far short of God's standard of perfection we fall. The reality, Paul says, is that the law only can imprison us. And since the law can only and always show us our sin, the law can never, ever save us. That's Paul's point in verse 21. He says, If a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. The law of God can never save you because you can never keep it perfectly 100% of the time. If you could always obey the law, then as Paul said, your righteousness, your salvation would be by the law based on what you do. But the reality is that you can't, no matter how hard you try, keep the law perfectly. The law can never save you. The law only imprisons you. And God knew this. He knew what the law could do for us and what it would never do. And so he did something about it. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to ransom, to rescue us, to redeem us from our sins. In verses 23 through 26, Paul says that we have been ransomed from our imprisonment by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. Look at these verses, verses 23 through 26. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. And we'll pause there. Our our sin imprisoned us. The law held us captive. We cannot break free. We cannot set ourselves free. There is no escape from the Alcatraz of the law. There's only one way out of your imprisonment to sin. You have been set free, believer, By Jesus Christ and by his blood shed for you. As he gave his life on the cross, he died in your place and on your behalf. He shed his blood to pay your ransom, freeing you from your sin, freeing you from your imprisonment to the law. And this freedom, this ransom, this forgiveness and grace isn't something that you can earn by good behavior or can be won on appeal. This ransom is freely given by our Heavenly Father as a gift and is received, Paul says, by faith, by simple belief and trust in Jesus. Paul said in verse 24 that we are justified by faith. To be justified is to be declared right, to be declared not guilty. And we are declared not guilty by, not on the basis of our good works that we do, not on the basis of us keeping the law. We are declared not guilty by faith, by belief, by receiving Jesus, trusting in Jesus. He has ransomed us. He has rescued us from all the imprisonment to sin. And there's another beautiful reality we need to look at in connection with these verses. And it's the reality that believers not only have been ransomed, have been rescued by Christ, uh, by faith in Christ, we have also been baptized into Christ. We have been baptized into Christ. Look at these verses, verses 27 through 29. Paul says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Baptism, Paul says, unites us with Christ. We are baptized into Christ. And that little word in or into, it's a small word, but it's a very important one. In baptism, we are united. We are connected with Christ. Far from being a mere symbol of our dedication to God or or something we do, so God is pleased with us. Baptism actually unites us, actually connects us with Christ. And baptism, Paul says, also clothes us in Christ and in his righteousness. You are baptized into Christ. You have put on Christ. Your baptism covers you, believer, with the righteousness, with the goodness of Christ. It's as if you've, you've put on a new jacket, and the jacket is the perfection of Christ himself. All of your sin and guilt have been removed and covered by Christ's blood shed for you. And that comes to you, scripture says, in baptism. And since we have been united with Christ and clothed in his righteousness through baptism, believers are, as Paul says, we are one in Christ Jesus. We are one in Christ Jesus. And it's not a national secret right now, but in the United States, we are pretty divided as a nation, right? Pick any news network, any newspaper, any website, right? And they'll highlight and and sometimes encourage these divisions. Left and right, Republican, Democrat, white, black, progressive, conservative, pro this, anti that, anti that, pro this, right? Take your pick. And in the time of the New Testament, there there was great division as well. Two thousand years of, of human history have kind of put these distinctions out of our mind, but they were just as real to those people, and maybe even more so, uh, than the divisions we are encountering today. In the, in the Jewish mindset, the, the divide between Jew and Gentile might as well have been the Grand Canyon. And for the Roman, the divide between Roman and barbarian was even wider. And in the early church, right, Jews would not associate, would not eat with Gentiles, anybody who wasn't a Jew. And barbarians in the eyes of Rome, barbarians, those who weren't Roman citizens, had zero rights. They were worse off than slaves. But in the early church, with the introduction of Christianity and the message of the gospel, those divides began to be challenged. In one city, in one church, you would have both Jews who believed in Jesus as the Messiah and Gentiles who believed in the God-man who died for them coming together to worship. A Roman citizen and a barbarian were being baptized on the same day and are now part of the same family despite their differences in national identity. In the church, those, those divides slowly began to shrink and become smaller. And this is because of the reality that in Christ, Scripture says, we are united, one body, equal before the throne of God. And there are still, of course, different gifts and roles given within the church context. Paul makes that very clear elsewhere. But as we have been united to Christ, we are all one in Christ. We are all one body in him. And I believe the same sort of of thing can happen today as well. Healing and unity in in the United States will only begin when we, uh, once again, begin to see one another as just that, another precious human eternal soul for whom Christ died. That doesn't mean that all divides will instantly be fixed. No, we're still fallen sinners who need daily to put down our pride and our hubris to admit our faults, to be quick to ask for forgiveness. None of us have this all figured out. We're all just works in progress. But when we begin to, to recognize those we disagree with as, as equals in the eyes of our common creator, that begins, that begins to change how we treat them, doesn't it? No longer are they a misguided fool or a total idiot for believing what they do or thinking what they think. Instead, we're able to extend grace to them They are a brother or sister in need of guidance and correction. We begin to, as Paul encourages us, to bear with one another. Bear with one another. That's the Bible's way of saying put up with one another. And we do that knowing that they are also called to put up with me and put up with you. You are all one in Christ Jesus, Paul says. And there's one final truth that we need to comprehend as children of our Heavenly Father, and it's this, we have been adopted by the Father. Uh, Look in Galatians chapter 4, the first seven verses there, continuing Paul's train of thought. He says, let me back up to verse 29 of chapter 3, and then we'll go into chapter 4. He says, And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he's under guardians and masters or managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Believer, the reality is that you have been adopted by God. You have been received. You have been adopted into his family. God sent forth his son so that we might receive adoption as sons. And when we, think of, when we think of adoption today, we think of, of situations right? where a husband and wife who uh, moved out of love and care and compassion and cern, concern uh, adopt a child, right? oftentimes from less fortunate situations, or, or we think of adoption in connection with the, with the urging of, of those who follow their own uh, kids to the animal shelter where they pick up a dog or a cat that fits their family well, right? Uh, and once that child or that pet is adopted, it becomes a part of the family. Modern adoptions are, are rightly based on love and care and concern for those less fortunate. And when Paul spoke of being adopted by God, he had a slightly different picture in his mind. In Paul's day, adoptions were common, yes, but not for, not for the reasons you would suspect People within Roman culture in Paul's day adopted solely to pass on an inheritance or a title to the next generation. Titles, inheritances, estates, jobs were all based on inheritance. If you were a young man in Roman culture, you did what your father did. If he was a carpenter, you were a carpenter. If he was a bricklayer, you were a bricklayer. If he was a Roman senator, you would probably become a Roman senator tagged for his job. Wealthy families who did not have sons or who had sons who were totally and completely incompetent would adopt somebody who was competent to take over the title and the estate. In Paul's day, infants and children were very rarely adopted. Adoption of, of men over 18, over 20 was, was the norm. Um, well after that, that child had a chance to prove himself. And I, I suppose that kind of makes sense, right? You don't know how a baby is going to turn out. I have no idea how Cademan is going to turn out. I pray the best for him, right? But you have no idea how he's going to turn out. So you wait until somebody is fully grown to see if they're competent to become that senator or whatever. Probably the most famous adoption in all of Roman history is the adoption of Julius, or I'm sorry, Caesar Augustus. Uh, Julius Caesar had no competent heir to take over after he was done, so he adopted his great-grandnephew, Augustus, who had been born into relative obscurity. And when Julius Caesar was assassinated, um, Augustus rose to power. He claimed the throne. He became emperor and really turned the Roman Republic into that empire. And if you're not a history buff and I've just caused you to tune out, I'm sorry, but the name Caesar Augustus should be familiar to you as, as a Christian, right? Augustus was emperor when Jesus was born, right? In Luke chapter 2, we read, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world which should be registered, right? And later on, Caesar Augustus himself adopted a son by the name of Tiberius, who became emperor after him. And Tiberius was the emperor when Jesus was crucified. And in fact, nearly all of the Roman empires after Caesar Augustus were adopted. The Romans adopted to pass on those titles, those estates, those inheritances. And so when Paul tells the church of Galatia that they have been adopted by God, he's drawn up pictures in their mind of the adoptions within their own political system and their own culture. And believer... We have been adopted by God. He has adopted us as his children. So what does this mean? A couple of practical things. First, just as, any, as in any adoption, you have been transferred from one family to another family. You become a part of that new family. Uh, Dr. Russell Moore uh, was the uh, former, uh, what was his title, former... Um, dean of the Southwest School of the Bible, School of Theology, I think, and uh, former president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission at the Southern Baptist Convention. Anyway, he works at Christianity Today, uh, writer, author, publisher. You've you've probably run run across some of his stuff. Uh, But anyway, in 2002, he and his wife adopted two boys from Russia. And uh, as they were at the uh, Russian airport, ready to fly back, they met an American woman uh, who asked this question. She said, but are they brothers? To which Dr. Moore replied, well, they are now. And she said, but well, no, you know what I mean. Are they, are, they, are they really brothers? To which Dr. Moore, again, slightly irritated, says, yes, they are now brothers. She, she said, you know what I mean, right? She meant, are, do they share the same DNA, the same genetic material? Or are, the, are they the same blood type? Those sorts of things, right? Those are the questions that really mattered to her. Were they really brothers? But, but the, the former things don't matter anymore, right? Yes, now these boys are really brothers. All of their past familial ties, whatever they had been, had been legally cut, and they were now part of a new family, And the same thing has happened to you, believer. You were enslaved to sin, imprisoned under the law, held under a guardian. But now because of Jesus Christ, you have been redeemed, received into a new family, adopted into the family of God, made an heir of all the blessings and benefits that go along with being his son, his daughter. And as part of this new family, the family of God, we get to call God, the, the almighty creator who is so holy, holy, holy that we in and of ourselves are unworthy to come into his presence, we get to call God Abba. He says in verse 6, "...because you are sons, God has spent, sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father." And Abba has, has nothing to do with the 70s pop band from Sweden, okay? Uh, Abba is an Aramaic word meaning daddy. Daddy. It's what uh, my two-year-old calls me, dada. It's a term of endearment, a term of love. It's the name that Jesus called his father in the Garden of Gethsemane. Abba, father, daddy. And we, as sons and daughters, get to call God daddy. Daddy. And as sons and daughters of our Abba Father, we, Paul says, are being renewed by his Spirit daily. Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts. Believer, you have the Holy Spirit of the living God dwelling in you. His Spirit guides you. It leads you. It renews you. It refreshes you. It strengthens you. It recharges you. You have the Spirit living in you. I began this morning's sermon with some really bad dad jokes in honor of Father's Day, even if you tried to block that out of your memory, right? I want to end this morning's sermon on a little bit more serious note, right? All of us have at times been disappointed by our earthly fathers, haven't we, right? They've, they've let us down. They've missed the t-ball games or the dance recitals, the theater performances. They worked a lot. They were absent, or at worst, they were abusive, And if that's you, I am sorry. But know, know that you have a loving, heavenly Father who is merciful and generous and gracious and compassionate and he longs to heal those hurts that are there. In verse 7, Paul says, you are no longer a slave but a son. And that you, the word you is is singular. It's not a plural y'all or all y'all. He's getting personal here. He's talking to you, not the person sitting next to you in the pew, but to you, believer. You are a son and daughter of God. And if you've never taken that opportunity to embrace God as your Heavenly Father, if you've never uh, been adopted by our Heavenly Father, if you haven't had that chance to become his child, have you, if you haven't received his mercy and grace and forgiveness, Don't delay. Father's Day is a perfect time to get to know your Heavenly Father. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Abba, Father, Daddy, we thank you that we can come to you Because of of your son, Jesus, who died for us, shedding his blood, cleansing us from our sin, uh, uh, making us new creations in Christ. We thank you that we get to come before your throne of grace, uh, calling you Abba, Father, Daddy. Lord, and we pray that you would strengthen us in our relationships with one another, that we would be able to love one another, share with one another this message of the good news of Jesus and what has happened to us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.